Hey, welcome to After Church Apologetics. I'm Courtney Seacrest here with Dr. Chris Jakeway and Pastor Leo Wilson, and we're inviting you to join us today in uncovering the truths that will challenge, inspire, and expand your perspective on Christianity. So let's get started. Welcome back to After Church Apologetics. Today's question is, why were some books left out of the Bible? Well, this is a question that comes up a lot, especially with all the television programs about, uh, you know, missing texts and so on. Um, We'll focus on the New Testament here because that's what people usually have in mind when they ask that question. And the way it's worded here, you know, the phrase left out assumes that they were supposed to be there in the first place. But any book was rejected if it didn't meet four criteria for New Testament canonicity. And when we talk about the canon, we mean a a measuring rod, canon with one end in the middle, not like a big gun. To say a book is canonical means just that it's part of uh, Scripture. So we know what these four criteria are by seeing what the New Testament books have in common. Yeah, sometimes when we talk about that criteria, people will push back and say, well, that's the same difference. You're just picking the criteria and then you're determining what scripture is. And I'm like, the way you're saying that, I want to use an analogy to, to help you understand what we're not doing, what we are doing there. In science, when we categorize animals... We talk about something with hair being warm blooded and we go through like the criteria for what a, what a mammal is. I'm not sitting there and determining like, Hey, look, this therefore is a mammal and I make it grow hair and make it warm blooded. It's I'm using a categorization, a criteria to say, Hey, look, when I look at these things, how are they related? How do we know what they are? And therefore, if I find something else in the future, how do I know what it is? Because if it's cold-blooded and it's got the scales and it's in a reptile type of family, I know it's not categorized as a mammal. So when Chris talks about these criteria, that's exactly what we're doing. We're not picking what scripture is. We're trying to use it to understand what is scripture. Yeah. We're not just randomly uh, uh, selecting these. We're looking at all the biblical books, seeing what they have in common and what the fake writings, sometimes called pseudepigraphal texts, lack. And in most cases, those books that people have in mind aren't in the Bible because they lack uh, all four of these, but at least one or two of these qualities are missing, and that's why they're not Uh, considered scripture. I I always think it's funny, uh, you know, when this comes up in college Bible classes, there's always a student who says, and they always say this as if they've uncovered some great conspiracy, like, uh, uh, I think that ancient church rejected some of these books just because they disagreed with them. And I always say, yeah, that that that's how that works. What? Why would you keep things as part of Scripture that clearly oppose uh, what the message of the prophets is? So, of course, they rejected things because they disagreed with them. And the primary reason, in terms of the New Testament canon, the first one is apostolicity, which just means. To be considered part of the New Testament, it had to be 
connected to an apostle, either written by one or Luke, for example, traveled with Paul, somebody directly connected to one. Mark uh, uh, gets the message from Peter. So apostolicity means it had to be written in the eyewitness period. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, uh, do not become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy report or letter supposed to have come from us, meaning the apostles, uh, saying that the day of the Lord has already come, but didn't really come from the apostles. You know, we've talked before about Ephesians 2.20, about Christianity built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. So the second one after apostolicity is content that a text had to be consistent with apostolic teaching. So if something comes along that opposes what the apostles wrote, uh, obviously that wouldn't be accepted. In Galatians 1.8, Paul says, if we or an angel from heaven which makes it an interesting one for the Latter-day Saints because the Mormons say, well, Joseph Smith knew the Book of Mormon was legitimate because it came from an angel. Paul says, if we are an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Second Thessalonians 2.15, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, he says whether by word of mouth or by letter. So that's two. The third criterion is recognition. And that means simply that all of the biblical texts were accepted by all the churches. First Thessalonians 2.13. He writes to the church at Thessalonica quite a bit about this process, actually. Paul says, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. And that leads to the fourth one then, which is relevance. There had to be some understanding that it was spiritually beneficial for all believers. You know, it's not like if the apostle Paul made out a a grocery list. It's in the New Testament because Paul wrote it. It had to fit the purpose uh, for uh, uh, spiritual growth and encouragement and so on. And this brings us to the well-known 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So those are the four qualifications a text had to meet to be part of the New Testament. You know, Chris, I've had people recently um, show me a TikTok video and don't look at me like that. I don't have TikTok. I, somebody showed me TikTok um, and uh, and they were showing me and it was a critical scholar, which is, you know, somebody who critical of, of scripture doesn't want to fully believe it. And he quoted that second Timothy three sixteen. He says, right. But in, in Timothy's time, when Paul is writing to him, the scriptures were the old Testament scriptures, not the new Testament scriptures. And I said, well, I mean, in part he's right, but there's also passages like second, what is it? Second Peter three sixteen. Is it first Peter three sixteen, where it says, you know, Hey, look at some of Paul's teachings are hard to understand, you know, but, uh, that just like other scriptures are important and by his wording of that. He talks about how, like, this is scripture as well and identifies it. So And calls them scripture. Yeah, and calls them scriptures and stuff. 
So it's interesting how some people just want to push back and not look at the whole story or look at the rest of scripture to say, hey, look, these guys understood that they were writing scripture as well. And and again, just to make sure I got that right, you you did mention TikTok. I, I did mention TikTok. That's, that's it sounds like to me, we're going to start making TikToks. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it's okay, everyone. I'll work on them. So what do people mean when they talk about the lost gospels? And is that not a movie starring Nicolas Cage? Pro- probably <laughs> upcoming. Uh, the lost gospels is another interesting uh phrase that's become very popular, but the only thing lost would be the publisher's profits if they didn't market this material uh, this way, really. Uh, If you look at all of them, and I have a collection of these where they all have the words like lost or hidden or secret Secret. in it. You know, I I love that word secret because it's kind of like they're saying, hey, hey, this is the stuff they don't want you to know about. And then you're supposed to think, well, you know, I've got the regular gospels. They're old. They're boring. I want the good stuff. Give me the secrets. And they, and it's marketed that way. Like you're, you know, getting in on something really special because everyone loves a secret. Well, the point is none of these were lost or hidden or secret. They weren't lost. Scholars have discussed them for a long time. They weren't hidden. The church fathers refuted them back to the second and third centuries. I I don't know how they would be able to do that if they were actually hidden. They weren't secret. They're openly debated. They were simply rejected because they failed to meet any of the criteria for uh, canonicity that we talked about. And you think about some of the examples here, and these are the ones that people think actually should be a part of it. The Gospel of Peter, I've talked about this on uh, Sundays before. When people think that the resurrection is so fantastic in the New Testament, you know, how could you believe somebody coming back to life? If you really want a fantastic version of the resurrection, in the gospel of Peter, Jesus is buried while he's still nailed to the cross. And then on the morning of the resurrection, three guys, because he's buried with the thieves, three guys walk out of the tomb, and then the cross walks out under its own power. I mean, picture like a a whole wooden cross kind of bouncing along on the ground. This is actually what it is. It sounds like a VeggieTales episode. It pretty much. <laughs> it does. The cross walks out. Then as the three guys stand there, Jesus in the middle, their necks begin to stretch because their heads float up to the clouds and Jesus's head goes through the clouds. And then you hear the voice of God from heaven that says, have you preached to those who sleep? And then the cross answered, the wooden cross answers and says, yes, it's all very dramatic. That That's the gospel of Peter in verses 39 to 42, uh, what you can see there. In the infancy gospel of Thomas, this I think is probably my favorite uh, of all of these, uh, even wackier than the gospel of Peter. By the way, you know, uh, all of these were written centuries afterward, and they're clearly forgeries because 
Peter, Thomas, Judas, all these people had been dead for centuries by the time these were written. But the Infancy Gospel of Thomas is a collection of miracles by Jesus before he turned 12 years old. And in some of them was just five years old. And what we get here is a very precocious, ill-tempered brat kind of Jesus who bossed people around and uh, in some cases just murdered people if he got mad at them. Uh, when Jesus was five years old uh, in the Gospel of Thomas, he made 12 sparrows out of clay, and it happened to be on the Sabbath. And apparently he just molded little things out of clay and I don't know, was making little figurines to play with or something. And Joseph comes up to him and says, uh, Jesus, you, you know, it's the Sabbath and this is work. You can't work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says he didn't do any work. And he says, well, I see 12 clay birds there. So Jesus claps his hands and said, be gone. And they transform into real birds and fly away. And then I guess Jesus is able to say, I see no sparrows here, you know, uh, uh, that that kind of thing. That's in the Gospel of Thomas, uh, chapter two and verses one to four. In another episode in uh, Thomas, Jesus made a pool of water by a stream, like just kind of kids playing in the mud. And another boy came along and destroyed it. And I'll read the exact uh, uh, quote here from Chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, Jesus says, You idiot, what did that pool do to harm you? And so at that point, Jesus uh, made him decay into an old man, uh, which is kind of interesting. Another child was running through the village and banged into Jesus's shoulder, so Jesus killed him. His exact words were, You will go no further. That's in... Uh, Chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. And then the parents complained to Joseph. So later, uh, Jesus, you know, the people in the village don't like how you're killing their children. Uh, it's getting awkward. This is in chapter 5, verse 1. So Jesus then blinded the parents, says to Joseph, I know this isn't coming from you. I'm not going to hold you accountable, uh, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and another one, lots in the infancy uh, gospel of Thomas. In chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, Jesus was playing on a rooftop, uh, you know, flat roofs in the ancient world, playing on a rooftop, and a child fell off the roof and died. And his parents, I guess after all these other episodes, uh, his parents accused Jesus of pushing him. So Jesus raises the kid from the dead just so he can ask him, did I push you off the roof? And, uh, you know, the kid says no. And then I guess he can turn to the parents and go, okay, then uh, this is the kind of uh, Jesus you have here. Did I throw you down is the exact words. And then lastly, for the infancy gospel of Thomas, my favorite in chapter 13, verses one to two, uh, Joseph, the carpenter, was making a, a bed, and a crossbeam came out too short. And uh, Jesus then, we're not told how, waves his hand over the top of it or whatever, and stretches the wood. 
Well, you know, I've always pointed out, it makes me wonder why they're bothering to cut it in the first place. He could just snap his fingers and the thing would be built. But the earliest version we have of this is from the sixth century. So 500 years after the biblical gospels were written, Christian themed fiction was as popular in the ancient world as it is today. And so people tried to add these stories because they wanted to kind of amp up the divine uh, part of Jesus. You know, when, when people say, that's what the gospel writers are doing. That's actually what the Gnostic texts uh, are doing. And that brings us then to the gospel of Judas. You m- do you remember hearing about this? Television special National Geographic did for two hours. Uh, yeah, you do You do a great impression of the, the narrator voiceover guy. <laughs> yeah, you should, <laughs> you should do it. Well... <laughs> Sherry and I were uh, watching a commercial uh, for this, and they were just, they were overly dramatic about uh, um, how, uh, you know, the narrator at one point says, this could have shocking implications for Christianity. Like you're supposed to be sitting at home going, oh man, we better tune in. We... We, I said to my wife, we may need to find something else to do on Sundays because it turns out this whole Christian thing is a sham and National Geographic's going to prove it. And they so draw people in with these claims. Well, the gospel of Judas is this story about how Judas was actually a good guy. He had a secret plan worked out with Jesus. And so... They claim that that's the true gospel, but it's an anti-Christian Gnostic text. Gnosticism from the Greek word gnosis, you pronounce the G in Greek, refers to secret spiritual knowledge. So Jesus takes Judas aside here and says, I will tell you the mysteries of the kingdom and the mysteries that none of this is real. That's the message Jesus has. So he says, Essentially, when we get to the garden, you pretend like you're betraying me, but, you know, this was all part of the plan. And the exact words are that you, Judas, will be cursed by other generations, but you will come to rule over them. Well, there's been a big effort to try to make the Gnostic texts predate Christianity, but they don't. They come later. Uh, And it's clear why, because they want to set up this idea that somehow they've copied the Gnostic texts. We know the Gnostic texts come later because the whole purpose of them is to oppose Christianity. The purpose of Gnosticism was to oppose the resurrection of Jesus There's no point in saying that unless there are already texts being circulated saying that he was resurrected, right? Why did the Gnostics oppose resurrection? Because they said the crucifixion hadn't happened either. Why didn't the crucifixion happen? Because you can't nail a ghost to a cross. In Gnosticism, Jesus didn't have a physical body. He was just a spirit being. And these ideas were kind of floating around with the mystery religions, which is why John talks about people who deny that Jesus had come in the flesh, uh, 
didn't have a proper uh, biblical understanding of it here. So the gospel of Judas is rejected because it is not consistent with apostolic teaching. And people always ask me, uh, you know, is it okay to read those things? Oh, it can be interesting to read them, but I, you know, I always say, do not read this stuff if you actually expect to learn something about Christianity. Uh, and maybe, maybe not everyone will remember this reference, but I used to say in class, it, it would be like if someone said, I want to learn more about the medieval period. So my plan is to watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Which is a, a spoof, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's not intended to be taken seriously. It's meant for entertainment. That's exactly what these books were when they were written back in the day. Just a couple more examples here are, I think, are interesting. The Gospel of Mary, talking about Mary Magdalene here. Uh, this was big because critics like Dan Brown, who wrote The Da Vinci Code. Now, that's been quite a while now. 2005, I think that came out. But... Uh, the movie was a major blockbuster, and there have been a couple uh, sequels since. Well, Dan Brown's idea was that the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and these others were rejected by the ancient church because they elevate the feminine. They elevate the goddess, right? He was very much pro-goddess religion, and uh, Biblical Christianity is horrible and sexist and that kind of thing. But it, it, here's what's so fascinating about this. And it, it really makes me wonder if the people who support these pseudepigraphal texts have actually bothered to read them entirely, because these Gnostic writings are the most anti-woman, anti-feminist things uh, I've ever seen. Uh, in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, chapter 5, verse 3, Mary says, Let us praise his greatness, referring to God, for he has prepared us and made us into men. The Gnostics actually taught that in order for women to go to heaven, they had to be changed into men. So why Dan Brown or anyone else would think that... The this is somehow supporting feminism and goddess we religions. We know the gospel that people are reading today. It's all making sense now. It, it, it's, it's the same thing in the gospel of Thomas, not in this case, the infancy gospel of Thomas, which we talked about earlier, but the gospel of Thomas chapter 114, listen to verses one to three, just exactly as it's translated from the text. Peter said to them, make Mary leave us for females do not deserve life. Jesus said, I will guide her in order to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males for every female who makes herself male will enter the domain of heaven. Now, how that supports goddess religions I don't know, because all of these texts say, if you're a woman, you need to sprout a penis, essentially, or enjoy hell, because the only way you're going to heaven, it's what the text says, is if you become male. So 
it, it it just it reaches a point of absurdity that it makes me wonder if people have actually read these texts. Uh, the last one I thought would be of interest is the Gospel of Philip, because that's actually the basis for the Da Vinci Code. That's where Dan Brown says that Jesus had a sexual relationship with Mary. There's this little village in Egypt. It's called the Nag Hammadi. So these are known as the Nag Hammadi texts and uh, about 70 miles north of Luxor. It's the biblical city of Thebes. We only have one copy of this Gospel of Philip. It's fragmentary. It's uh, dated very late. Uh, so it has literal holes in it. It's like holding up a piece of Swiss cheese to look at this text. You can get online and see pictures of it. And at one point in uh, section 55, it says, Jesus kissed Mary on the, and then there's a hole in the text. Where did he kiss her? The I'm going to say lips. The, <laughs> oh, scandalous. The hand, the, well, that's exactly what Dan Brown said. Uh, he obviously kissed her on the lips because they were having babies. And then he's often running with books and movies and all kinds of things. By the way, elsewhere in this text, Jesus kisses Peter and John on the cheek, no hole in the text. And what was a kiss on the cheek in the ancient world? A greeting. Yeah. It was nothing more than a, a, a handshake. So, just to review then the criteria for canonicity, we talked about using this Gospel of Philip as an example, and these reasons would apply to the text also. Why is this rejected? Well, first of all, it's a known forgery. Philip was long dead, so it fails the test of apostolicity. It was written 250 to 300, far too late to be an eyewitness account. Uh, there's no evidence to support its authenticity. There's only agenda. It teaches in section 67 that we become Christ. Again, that almost like New Age exemplar Christ. So it fails the test of orthodox content. In section 17, it also denies the virgin birth. It says that Jesus and Mary had a sexual relationship in sections 32 and 55. And by the way here, had Jesus been married, the church would have had no reason to cover that up. Another thing that's kind of fascinating to me is this idea that, well, Jesus might have secretly had a wife, but, you know, the church couldn't say anything about it. Scripture presents Jesus as fully divine and fully human, and getting married is a human thing to do. There's nothing shocking about that. Jesus did other human things like eat food and drink water and sleep and walk around. I mean, had Jesus been married, the church would have had no reason to hide this. So uh, there's no conspiracy there at all. I think the reason probably Jesus didn't get married is he knew his time here was short and uh, why put uh, a family through that. But had he been married, the, the church would have no reason to hide that. And lastly here, the Gospel of Philip was never accepted by any church. It fails the test of recognition. 
And that fourth one, it fails the test of relevance because it says in sections 21 and 23 that the resurrection is false. Again, the Gnostics denied the resurrection and the crucifixion. That's a great example of you heard him go through the criteria. And that's that's the benefit of having the criteria. When everybody got together and they're like, hey, but we need to lay this out. What is what is scripture going to follow? It's to help analyze future things that come up. Hey, this should be it. Hey, this should be it. And it's like, we actually talked about this a long time ago. And what we did was develop this criteria to help us recognize what it was. And that doesn't fall into it. So it's just another reason of why the criteria isn't for our own, like just to pick and choose what we want. It's to help us determine what God gave us. Okay. Well, that's it for today. And we will see you next time on TikTok. Thanks for hanging out with us on After Church Apologetics today. To submit a question for a future episode of our show, you can email us at podcast at bcfriends.org. Remember, the pursuit of truth is ongoing. So we'd like to encourage you to continue seeking and engaging with the topics that we've discussed for yourselves. And as we conclude this episode, we want to remind you that respectful dialogue can bridge gaps and build connections. We'll see you next time.